0: Thank you. Please be seated. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to Paul's letter to the Colossians again. We're in a series and we're about to finish today chapter 2. Taking a little bit longer of a passage, we're going to take from verse 18 down to the end and um, finish up this study on... um, what uh, the Lord truly wants from us, his people. I'll, I'll start back in verse uh, 16. Well, how about uh, back in verse 13 for context? Uh, we'll pick up reading chapter, uh, Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 13 to the end. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he's taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities, and powers he made a public spectacle of them triumphing over them in it so let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or sabbaths which are a shadow of the things to come but the substance is of christ let no one cheat you of your reward this is the passage for today taking delight in false humility and worship of angels intruding into those things which he's not seen vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind and not holding fast to the head from whom all the body nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments grows with the increase that is from god therefore if you died with christ from the basic principles of the world why as though living in the world do you subject yourselves to regulations do not touch Do not taste, do not handle, which all concern things, which perish with the using according to the commandments and doctrines of men. These things indeed have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and the neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Let's pray once more together then, please. Uh, Our Father in heaven, we come uh, humbly to your word, uh, knowing that in in so many ways we are the very people who need to hear such things again that uh, from the depths of our heart and our mind that we might be rooted and grounded in Christ and not seek to live our lives out of any other power or any other form. We pray that he would be our all in all, that we, being complete in Christ, would live to his glory. Oh, teach us again. The basics, we pray it for Jesus' sake, amen. Many of you will know that my wife grew up not far from here in Franklin County, Virginia, which uh, has a certain claim to fame. You see, soon after Prohibition became the law of the land in the 1920s and alcohol was outlawed in America, more sugar was being shipped to Franklin County than to New York City. No, they weren't making funnel cakes. Uh, They were still in whiskey, and it became known as the moonshine capital of the world. In fact, some historians uh, estimate that 99 out of every 100 Franklin County residents at that time were in some way involved in the illegal liquor trade, which was popularly known as bootlegging. Still today, uh, whenever people skirt the law in order to uh, create their own anything, they call it bootlegging. Bootleg movies, bootleg concert T-shirts, why you name it, will bootleg anything. When people break the law to make it their own, to make their own, it's a bootleg. Well, some people take that approach to religion, and that's the title for my sermon today. Why not bootleg? religion. In fact, I was gonna have a much more uh, boring title as usual, but the truth is I just couldn't come up with anything that would cover the whole passage, and then I came across a sermon by Ralph Davis, uh, the associate minister at our largest church in Columbia. He's much more colorful than me, and I just like that phrase that he used, so so I bootlegged his sermon title and uh, (laughs) Stirred it up a little bit and uh, that's what you're going to be uh, getting uh, today Uh, Bootleg Christianity making your own unlawful religion. What what's wrong with that? Well in the passage before us uh, Paul tells us that we must strongly reject any man-made approach to Christianity now this has been his theme in one way or the other since verse 4 Uh, Verse 4, this I say, lest anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. This man-made false teaching. Uh, Verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Uh, It goes back and forth uh, here here again to verse 18 in our passage. Let no one cheat you of your reward. So you see, warning lights are flashing all over this passage as the apostle uh, urges us not to drift carelessly away from Christ, in whom he says are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, in whom we are already complete. Um, But bootleg religion still finds its way in. And it comes in many flavors. The, uh, Paul reminds us here. We've already seen earlier in this chapter how Christianity can go bad in a worldly way with things like uh, pagan philosophy or immorality, uh, worldly living. We then saw how it can go wrong in a Jewish way, uh, pushing Gentiles to adopt circumcision, verse 11, other requirements of the law like uh, food or drink, a festival, new moon or Sabbath. We just read, all that's fulfilled in Jesus. We saw that last week. And that's that's the great message of this chapter. People, we already have everything we need in Jesus. Nevertheless, we still find, throughout history, a desire to innovate, to uh, add something to what we've received in Christ, to come up with some better idea on our own. And Paul again and again, and and one more time as he brings this chapter to a close, warns you. Don't be satisfied with anything less than the real thing. Don't let somebody cheat you of your reward by what they're claiming. Now I'd like to summarize the warnings in this passage under two headings. And then, since I want it to be a positive message, I wanna give you the two positive things here that we really need if we're going to grow. So first, two flavors of bootleg. The first flavor of bootleg religion we'll consider today is asceticism, asceticism. Well, what is that, some of you want to know. It's actually what the English Standard Version has translated for verse 18, which I know that many of you read. Let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. Well, what does asceticism mean? Oxford American Dictionary says, quote, severe self-discipline and avoiding all forms of indulgence typically for religious reasons. I'll pause for a second and say we just read the call to worship about how people were fasting. They were treating their body harshly and they, they thought that was what they were supposed to be doing. God says, look, is that what I, is that what I asked you about on a, on a, on a holy day? What, what about... Um, What what about uh, doing good to people and uh, not turning away from your flesh and blood and why not feed the hungry? Why don't you do something like that? That's a holy day, not just this severe treatment of the body, you've misunderstood, okay. As an extreme example, asceticism is what Christian monks in the Middle Ages did when they slept on boards and wore painful hair shirts and practiced frequent fasting and listened to Justin Bieber. Inflicting pain on themselves, denying themselves pleasure for religious reasons, okay. So that's asceticism, okay. If you have the ESV, uh, that's what it means, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism. But I have to say that, 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 that translation is definitely more of an interpretation. The original, it's just the common word for humility, which uh, is mentioned later in this letter as a Christian virtue, it's the same word, and that's what I and most other translations have, but the ESV translators must have said, wait a minute, obviously this is not that kind of humility, so what can it be? And they connected it to verse 21 and following, where we all have about the same thing, Um, these regulations, oh, I don't touch that, oh, I don't taste that, oh, I don't handle that, That's the kind of false humility you see uh, that they believe is in view here. In any case, that is in this passage. These things that concern that which perishes, uh, the doctrines and commandments of men. Things that have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false humility, and here neglect of the body, but are of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. Okay, so that's your vocab word for today, asceticism. Strict regulations, a man-made legalistic approach to godliness, the neglect of the body, that's asceticism. Well, you say, what could possibly be the attraction in that? Well, you know, the human race has always looked for ways to control our sinful passions. We all, all people wrestle with internal temptations to do what is wrong and a very practical question that we'll be answering today in next several weeks is well how can we keep the desires of our flesh in check one popular answer to that question in many religions is treat your body harshly this was around a very long time before christianity but it did come right into Christianity in those early centuries. Uh, Soon, uh, Christians were going without bathing or without sleep or were exposing themselves to extreme heat and cold or living on top of pillars, living on top of pillars or renouncing marriage and more. Or let's just come up to a more recent example, not to pick on anybody, but you might notice as you drive around that everyone's advertising fish sandwiches on their, sa- on their uh, signs, right? You think, well, that's interesting, why is that? Do you know why? It's because Roman Catholics don't eat meat on Fridays during Lent. Here's the official reasoning from the Baltimore Catechism, number 395. Why does the church command us to fast and abstain answer the church commands us to fast and abstain in order that we may mortify our passions and satisfy for our sins mortify our passions it explains means keep our bodies under control do bodily penance. Remember, it is our bodies that generally lead us into sin. If therefore we punish the body, they say, by fasting and mortification, we atone for sin. And thus God wipes out a part of the temporal punishment due to it, end quote. Well, one small example of an ascetic approach to dealing with sinful passions. It's not in any way unique to Rome. We have evangelical versions, orthodox versions of that. It exists everywhere in every religion in the world. But somebody might say, okay, well, what's wrong with that approach? Ah, all right. You say, okay, well, first of all, I know that Lent and eating fish on Fridays, I mean, that's not in the Bible. Um, so a little bootleg, of course, in that sense. But on the other hand, didn't Paul say that he disciplined his body and made it his slave? And didn't he tell Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness? And didn't Jesus say that self-denial is an essential requirement for following him? So then what is the difference between asceticism and just good old biblical self-denial and self-discipline. Ah, now we're gonna get somewhere. First, asceticism is submitting my body to my will. Biblical self-discipline is submitting my body and my whole life to God's will. The ascetic's goal is to bring his body under the control of his mind or spirit, but the Christian has a much higher aim, namely to glorify Jesus Christ by bringing the whole of our being into submission to him. Second, asceticism is about man-made rules. Paul calls it here self-imposed religion. Things like don't handle this, don't taste that, don't touch that, all according to the doctrines and commandments of men. And if you don't catch that reference there, by the way, that's a... Reference to Isaiah 29, that's the same verse that Jesus used when he condemned all those human traditions that the Jews had developed, all the man-made religious traditions that had made their way in. That's not a new concern, that's a very old concern. Jesus says, rightly did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, in vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines, the commandments of men. Vain worship, hypocrisy, that's what Jesus says it is. Same words as here. That's not new, that's back in Isaiah. We therefore have to distinguish between what God has commanded and what men have added to God's commands. My point is this, asceticism is aimed at obeying man-made commands. Biblical self-discipline is aimed at obeying God's commands. Third. Asceticism limits joy and pleasure, while self discipline seeks the fullness of joy and pleasure in God. To explain, there are many times, of course, when we do deny ourselves things, and we do that because we are seeking some greater joy in something else. I mean, we all know some things are just a waste of time, we all know some things are sinful. Although there may be some joy in them for a season, of course, but Christ wants our joy to be full. He wants you to be even happier. H.L. Mencken once erroneously but humorously described a Puritan as someone with the haunting fear that someone somewhere may be happy. Um, But that's foolish. Christians, of course, should be as happy as they could possibly be. As the song says, with solid joys and lasting treasures that none but Zion's children know. But back to the matter at hand. Asceticism says, you know, it's very spiritual to avoid certain pleasures, even though they're good things. And Paul says, uh, no, no, no. In fact, he explains it this way at length in his his first letter to Timothy. Look, the Spirit says that in later times, some will depart from the faith giving heed to deceiving spirits and the doctrines of demons. Ugh, what's that? Listen. Forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from foods, listen, which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, And nothing is to be refused if it's received with thanksgiving, for it's sanctified by the word and prayer. Ascetics will have, no, I don't touch that, I don't eat that, I don't try that, I don't do those things. Things which Paul says are good good things which God made to be received with thanksgiving. That's the doctrine of demons, people. We're told, yes, to avoid sin, but yet with moderation and self-discipline, rightly to enjoy everything that God has made and give thanks to him fourth asceticism is from the flesh and it often leads to sin Uh, in in particular this uh, matter of judging verse 16 Uh, see pretty soon uh, people who keep those rules look down on them that don't yeah we're we're the real holy ones we don't do this I wouldn't touch that we never do that and we look down on those that do For example, we saw last week how God said to keep the Sabbath holy. And then the rabbis came along and added a huge mass of regulation to govern people's outward behavior. So that on the Sabbath day, uh, they had all these commands that had nothing to do with the spiritual rest and holiness and blessing and frankly delight that the day was created to be in biblical terms it got so bad even i mean even the mishnah even the ancient jewish rabbinic tradition laments at one point the rules about the sabbath it says are as mountains hanging by a hair for this teaching of the scripture is scanty and the rules are many god god didn't give all these ascetic harsh rules Those are the Pharisees' inventions. Uh, So many of them like a mountain hanging from a little thread, which is what the Bible actually says. The Pharisees judged Jesus for not keeping their rules and and, and Jesus frequently attacked the Pharisees for their absurd man-made traditions, which were opposing God's original blessed purposes for that day. Such rules might appear holy, Paul admits. There may be some appearance of wisdom. It may look like it leads to godliness, but you know what it leads to? Pride, judgment, hypocrisy. The point is asceticism originates from the flesh. It's all the commands that we can do in our own flesh. And then it often leads to sin. Whereas Christian self-discipline comes from the spirit. It is a fruit of the spirit and leads to true godliness. Very big difference. Fifth and finally, I'll point out that Ascetic rules deal with externals, not the heart, not the mind. Now, if you want a real solution to your sin problem, you, you have temptations and struggles like I do. You want the answer? The Lord says it comes from within. And that's what we'll be reading starting in chapter 3 next week, but you can see how it begins already here. It, if then you were raised with Christ, Made alive, he says earlier with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not things on the earth. Starts at a whole different place. Ascetic rules deal with your external behavior, what you do, what you don't do, what people can see. Biblical self-discipline sets our hearts and minds on Christ, and so in general, Paul grants man-made rules of the ascetics have some appearance of wisdom, but they're of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. they might stop this or that and then just plunge you into the deeper sins of pride, judgment, hypocrisy. This is the first flavor of bootleg religion that we must avoid. And I thought about preaching a whole sermon on that, which I guess I just did, but we go on. Second, and more briefly, you'll be glad to know, he warns us against following angelic visions. Angelic visions. Um, as he puts it in 18, the worship of angels, intruding those things in which he has uh, seen or not seen, that is, he said he's seen, vainly puffed up in his fleshly mind. Okay, so what's going on with angels? I have to say we can't be sure. Um, There's various inscriptions in nearby Asia Minor or Turkey today um, from those old days where angels are appealed to and venerated and angels are asked for their protection and assistance and aid. I mean, wouldn't it be great to have an angel at your beck and call? Well, we can't say for sure if that's what was going on in Colossae. But I guarantee you what's going on today. I mean, just a very quick search on YouTube, which I don't recommend, turns up a number of such messages. One is called, quote, how to activate angels. It's related to a deliverance and uh, protection scheme offering, quote, daily fresh revelations from the prophet David Richard. Another on activating angels of deliverance from a a completely different guy, and so forth. So, all right. people probably were seeking uh, help from angels through this worship. And uh, Paul has already emphasized twice, I think actually three times now, why this is just wrong, why this just takes away from Christ. Um, Chapter two, verse 10, Christ is the head of all principality and power. Why do you go to the little guy? You're supposed to go to the big guy as for dominions or powers or principalities all things were created through Christ and for Christ 116 and then um, just where we where we took up here in uh, verse 15 here Jesus disarmed principalities and powers he made a public spectacle over them triumphing over them in the cross okay so look uh, Christ alone is our mediator he alone is our deliverer why would you why would you go anywhere else why go anywhere else but but you ask, okay, well, where did that false teaching come from? Paul says, uh, some people were claiming to have visions. Oh, I got this in a vision. The Lord told me, right? People have claimed, I mean, th- throughout every generation, people have claimed visions, supernatural revelations. Uh, P- Paul is certain in this case, they did not. He says it's all in their, um, he has some choice words vainly puffed up fleshly mind. How's that? The Bible describes, of course, real angels and real visions. And what's the difference? Well, they don't lead us away from the worship of Christ. They don't draw our focus away from him, which as Paul is saying here, the rest of the verse, what's actually happening in this case, not holding to the head, verse 19. That's how he knows it's all fake. Um, Ralph Davis, I mentioned earlier, he memorably summarizes the problem this way false religion substitutes the supposed vision for the living union. I mean, you want help? You want some hope in your life? This substitutes a supposed vision for the living union with Christ. I mean... Frankly, if I, if I told you I had a vision, a vision with angels, I mean, you'd all wake up. Uh, even if I just mentioned it, you wake up. Okay. Um, a vision of angels seems very exciting. It seems very dramatic. I mean, Muhammad said he had a vision of an angel in a cave, all alone, who told them all the words of the prophets and Jesus had actually been corrupted, but that he was going to receive the true word of God. Uh, how did that go? it caused a big stir. How big? Two billion people to this day are followers. Uh, this has famously happened several times in the church. I'm not going to mention the illustration I was going to give you for, uh, you know. This has happened time and time and time again. People say, oh, I have a I have a vision. I, I, I have a revelation. You say, where's your, where's your miracle that Moses said was supposed to come with that if you're going to tell me what the word of the Lord is? Deuteronomy 18. Well, I don't have that. But I saw a vision, okay. Um, you know, uh, I can name many, many cases in history where people claimed such revelations uh, in the church and had, soon had people following them rather than Christ. In fact, back in the 17th century, one of, uh, one of the several authors of our confession of faith, Samuel Rutherford, he wrote an interesting book called A Survey of Spiritual Antichrist and It's not what you might expect. He didn't say, oh, that stuff never happens. He actually goes through the Bible and looking at all the kinds of visions and revelations. And then he goes through church history, not just the old days, but even right up to his time dealing with um, some direction about whether some vision or dream or some other claim to supernatural knowledge is of God. So It's a big topic. I won't be able to give you more today than the bottom line, but uh, Paul's bottom line is clearly, you can't take you away from Jesus, right? Uh, Rutherford says, such things in the Bible, and and of course in, in, in true cases, are never the revelation of the church's or anyone else's faith or duty. No one ever gets a revelation like Muhammad and says, you know, this is not right, this is where we're going to go. uh, Second, they're never contrary to God's word. They never lead people, third, to follow into unsound doctrine or practice, which Moses warns about, Deuteronomy 13. And finally, they offer direction, but never constrain faith or duty. Funny way of saying it, but you know, Paul, he gets this uh, revelation um, about what's going to happen. in, if he goes to Jerusalem and he decides to go anyway, right? So it's not constraining his duty. May offer some direction. Uh, man of Macedonia, come over here to help us. He gets direction, he, he isn't uh, given something like a constrained faith or duty. Well, in general, let me just leave it at that. Rutherford has quite an abundance of, of, of examples and evidence if you'd like to consider that in general. Taking this passage, the church needs to be much more wise and discerning spiritually. And not just go off half-cocked when somebody says, I got a vision. This is not just ancient history. There's been a great resurgence of so-called visions and visions of angels today. Even in the evangelical church, you just check the bestseller list. They're on it. People want to hear it. Preachers want to tell it stories grow and grow but you remember paul's great concern here and and throughout the passage look is this really making people more and more holy verse 23 is this getting people more and more grounded in christ verse 6 and so forth because in fact bootleg religion not only substitutes a supposed vision for this living union It also substitutes the impressive for what is effective. Do you want what's impressive? Or do you want what works? What's effective? You say, what's effective? Well, now here's the positive side. Here's what Paul says in this whole passage throughout makes the difference. Here at the end, two things. Christ and therefore the body of Christ, verse 19. Let me read it to you positively, what Paul puts negatively here. Uh, Positively speaking, uh, we, we must hold fast to the head, Jesus, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments, grows with the increase that is from God. That's not not very impressive, but it is very, very, very effective. And that's where we must come back to and so. Let's see first, uh, we're talking about holding fast to Christ, then doing so as a member of his body. First, holding fast to Christ the head. Holding fast to Christ the head. This is what's going to work. We must be joined to Jesus Christ in a living way. I mean, no truer words were ever spoken by Jesus than he said, you can do nothing without me. But when he is the center of your life, when he is at work in your hearts, you cannot remain the same. There's no staying the same. And what's the difference? What's the difference between uh, these bootlegs here, this maybe this ascetic rules-based approach that has no power, right? But you know, hey, I wanna, I wanna be super spiritual. I'm gonna make this list. I'm gonna follow this list, and and this uh, more, we might say, organic approach that Paul has, union with Christ the head. What's the difference? What's the practical difference? Um, I gave this example uh, some weeks ago around New Year's, when uh, in the evening, when many of you were traveling, and I'm gonna pull it out one more time so that the rest of you can hear it. Uh, Thomas Boston, the Scottish minister um, in the early days of the associate church. uh, Well, when he was uh, a wee lad of just 12 or 13, he decided that he wanted to pray more regularly. So what was his approach? He vowed that he would pray so many times every day, each and every day. Now, he couldn't actually remember exactly um, how many times it was when he wrote the memoir, but he thinks it was three. Um, And he kept his resolution, but he writes honestly that he thanks God that he only promised to do this for a relatively short period of time. Because he says it was soon a, a tremendous burden to him and he found out that his prayers were often very poor because they were being made for no other reason than to keep from breaking his vow. This was the goal, this was the schedule, he was committed to do it, and at age 13, he at least had enough spiritual sense to know it's better for you to pray miserably than to break your vow. So, he pressed on, but my point is, it was not the result he hoped for. In the power of the flesh, he found that he could go through the motions. He could check all those boxes off in the power of the flesh. He could force himself to do it if necessary, But friends, that is not growth in godliness. And where is Christ in all that? But Boston learned, and he learned what he needed. And so, as another example, on a much later occasion, after experiencing a spiritual time of dryness and dullness of heart as a minister, he started a different path. He started with meditating on the Word of God and seeking the Lord in prayer. That he would warm his cold heart. That the Lord would give him, as he, as he put it here, cheerfulness in the Lord. And then the Lord answered his prayer. And this was then the resolution, the covenant that he made at that time. For then he wrote, listen to the difference now. I, Mr. Thomas Boston, minister of God's word at Simpron, For as much as I am, in some measure, sensible of my grievous, horrid, and frequent backslidings from the Lord since the last time I covenanted with God, and in particular, having been for some time habitually in a a dead and sleepy frame, for which cause, among others mentioned elsewhere, I set apart this day for fasting and prayer. And finding myself called to renew my covenant with god and to get my soul more confirmed in the lord for wading through the difficulties between me and heaven i did and now giving it under my hand i do adhere to all my former covenants with and engagements to be the lord jesus christ's and do now with all my heart and soul solemnly resign and give up myself and all my body and spiritual concerns unto Christ, taking him with my heart and soul upon those very terms and no other upon which he is offered in the gospel, resolving and hereby exchanging in his strength to cleave to him and his truths so long as I live, whatever the hazard, and this before the Lord, the searcher of hearts, I do with all willingness, subscribe by name. The 25th day of March, 1700 years, signed Thomas Boston. Here then is the great difference. You know, the outward motions perhaps are the same, praying and fasting in this case. But in the first case, he was just merely out to do it, thinking he might find some growth. In the second, he was out to grow in Christ. And this is the great difference of being just a box checker and being a living member of Christ himself. And here we are worshiping together on Sunday. And you know what? We're seeking to do it right. I preached on this passage before about the regular principle of worship and about our liberty of conscience in Christ and how we're only to do things according to his word and no traditions of men in this service. And that's all extremely important. But we need to remember that everything that we are doing as Christians, whether Sunday worship or private acts or devotion and service, are only good and useful insofar as they serve our living faith in Christ and our utter dependence upon Him. And that means that we don't come in with a satisfaction that we are doing everything we should, but a holy dissatisfaction with where we are now, that we need again to turn our eyes upon Jesus as the only one who can warm those cold hearts and lead us to real, joyful, transforming growth That's what we need. We need to lay hold of Christ, to hold fast to the head, and secondly, to do so as one joined in the body of Christ, joined in the body of Christ. Uh, Newsweek magazine a couple years ago picked up this national trend of ours in in an article called Forget the Church, Follow Jesus. It says that people are increasingly trying to live the Christian life disconnected aloof isolated slow to commit to relationships and quick to give them up well compare that to what we read here in verse 19 uh uh the body of christ nourished and knit together by joints and ligaments that that is you and me talking about us that it grows with the increase that is from God. There is no healthy Christian growth that is not part of a healthy body. And being a Christian means being a growing member of that body where there's not only dependence on the head, point one, but an interdependence upon the members, point two. Now some people, they say, well, I don't know about the church. It's not very healthy. Well, somebody put it this way. If you love your children, you want them to be healthy, but you love your children whether they're healthy or not. And it's precisely because of our shared weaknesses and faults and sins that we do need each other to love and lift one another up. What does he, what does he say again? Nourished and knit together by all of its joints and ligaments. That's a beautiful picture. And that means that you're not here today to attend church. Like somebody might go to the movies. You go to a movie, you're not joined together with the other attenders. You're not nourished and knit together with the other people eating popcorn. You come, you might greet a few people casually, you watch the show, you leave. That is not Christianity. If that's what you're doing here, make that the last day. The church is much, much more than a worshiping community. It is a loving, serving, nurturing, encouraging, edifying, transforming body of fellow believers. And through the ministry of every one of us in the congregation, the church is to be an instrument in the hand of God for love, blessing, uplifting, redeeming, renewing, all of his healthy purpose. That's what you need, right? If you're not a Christian, you need Jesus? And you need a people who, well, perhaps limping, uh, perhaps stumbling at times, are going the same direction. That's where life and growth are to be found. You need Christ. You need to be joined to the body of Christ. Is that you? Are you here today, and are you of that same description that Jesus gave earlier is one who was dead dead in transgressions and sins you need life and Jesus says I've come to have, give you life to give it to you abundantly And not only in him you get a whole bunch of people who are going to love you who are going to help you who are going to bear with you if you can bear with them and whom you are going to be with in great joy, joy and glory forever that's the deal you come today to this Jesus. In conclusion, I, I, I heard that uh, the giant redwood trees in California actually have very shallow roots. And you think, well, how does that work? I mean, how do they grow so enormous, so tall, and not topple over? The reason is that the redwood trees are a special kind of tree that are joined together at the roots knit together, they are actually members of one another. So they grow and they grow tall. And we as Christians, when we are rooted and built up together in Christ, connected, giving ourselves for one another, we're able to grow strong and stable and not just fly after the most recent thing. Oh, I heard about this, oh, I heard about that. Take up Paul's illustration here, these parts of the body They don't mature in isolation, they they mature in a healthy growing body. To grow, we must hold fast the head and we need a vital nurturing connection to each other in the body. And other approaches to growth, of which there are many, will promise much and deliver precious little. They may be very impressive, but this is what's effective. I mean, you hear somebody say, hey, I found this new approach. This new doctrine, this new practice, whatever it is, this new approach to the Christian life, it's life-changing. This is the answer. This is what every Christian needs. Uh, that's especially the way we advertise things in the American culture. Yeah, everything is revolutionary. The new car is revolutionary. Everything's revolutionary, right? Okay, and this sounds appealing to us as Christians because we know that Christian life is difficult, right? And we're, we're just too ready to hear if somebody says, there's an, there's an easy way to make it easier. But if somebody tells you that this new thing will revolutionize your christian faith oh dear friend be skeptical i mean it is certainly possible they have some useful things to tell you but if if those things are truly useful they will invariably be fresh powerful reminders of depending upon christ in the power of his holy spirit and growing together with his people, nourished and knit together in the Lord. And anything that detracts from the centrality of these facts, well, it may have an appearance of wisdom in self-reposed religion and the neglect of the body, but I tell you it's of no value against the indulgence of the flesh. It's bootleg religion. Enjoy nothing but the real thing. Let us grow together in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we do pray that the reality of this passage would settle in not only to each heart individually, but together and as a body. Oh, may we begin to grow to the, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ as it's written. To know his love that passes knowledge. Our Father, we, we confess that it's, uh, it is too easy for us just to to go through certain routines, come here, do that, and yet to be altogether just unchanged. We are dissatisfied with that. I pray for every single person in here that this would be the year of great spiritual change, growth, intimacy with one another, fellowship or communion in Christ, and joy in the Lord. I thank you for bringing everyone here today. If anyone does not have such joy, if there's one here who needs such a Lord, such a Savior, may he find today in Jesus the very answer of his life. We together pray as the Church of Jesus that we would more and more reflect the truths of this passage. Oh, teach us in the weeks to come, as we have been raised in Christ, how we might seek those things where he is. For Jesus has run away with our hearts to heaven.